0: Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4. Well, we're in our third week of our sermon series titled Transformed by the Renewing of Your Mind. This series is about God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart as holy unto the Lord. It means to be holy like Christ. Do you realize that God's will for you today and tomorrow and the rest of your life is that you would be set apart unto the Lord? to be sanctified. God's purpose for humanity is to glorify God by living in relationship to God in holiness. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created in the image of God, and they were created holy, so they would live in a relationship with God in holiness and glorify God in that way. And of course, they sinned and they plunged humanity into depravity, and therefore each person is born into this world with a sin nature. They are corrupt. We are corrupt. Humans are corrupt from the inside out. And that's why we sing about the gospel that Jesus came. God the Father sent his Son to redeem us, to rescue us from our sin, and then restore within us the image of God to make us like Christ. In fact, just as we introduced this this morning, think about it in this way. Sanctification has three tenses, three time periods. You have past tense. When you were converted, you were brought to life by the resurrection power of, of regeneration. You were given the new birth So at your conversion, the gospel was applied to your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel, Jesus died and rose again. So the Holy Spirit caused your old person, your old self, to die to sin and resurrected your soul to the Lord. And so at that moment, you were positionally made a saint. You are holy, a holy one. And throughout your life, God practically makes you more and more holy. We call that progressive sanctification. You're growing. You're becoming more and more like Christ practically. And then last of all, when you see Christ, as we sing in that song, it is well with my soul. When we see the Lord, when you see Christ, you will be changed both inside and outside, soul and body, to be completely like Christ, holy, completely like him. That's called glorification. So past tense, present tense, and then someday in the future, finally, completely holy. And so God's good work, listen to this, God's good work in your life right now is actually to do what his purpose is for you, and that is to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So as we think about the text of scripture that we're in, we're looking at how God transforms us. And so in verses 17 through 19, we saw why we need this transformation In the last week, we started in verses 20 and 21 to see how God transforms us. We'll continue to do that this morning in those texts and those verses, those four verses. And then we'll look at what transformation looks like. The title of the sermon here this morning is The Transformation Plan. So it's actually going to be this week and next week. We're going to look at this. But this week, we're going to look at a new nature. The Transformation Plan, a new nature. Nature. And really, I think the big idea of this text of scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 all the way down to 32. So, all these verses, I think the big idea is this right here. And that is, as a new person in Christ, you must walk like Christ by renewing your mind with the truth of Christ. And so as we go through these next three weeks and look at God's transformation plan and then see it working out practically, you're going to see this right here throughout this text, that God has made you a new person. That's through your conversion, through the regeneration of your soul. It's at conversion, I should say, through the regeneration of your soul. And you must walk like Christ. You put off the old, you put on the new, and then you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so this... This passage right here, verses 20 through 24, is how God transforms you to be like Jesus. So if if verses 17 through 19 are a description of a dysfunctional, degenerate person without God, then verses 20 through 24 is God's instruction manual on how he restores you. If verses 17 through 20 is a description of the inner person, broken, decimated, depraved, like a like a bur- building that's burnt out, then verses 20 through 24 is God's construction blueprints on how he renovates you from the inside out. So the question re- we really have to start off with this morning is, do you see that you need to be transformed? And do you desire to be transformed? That's God's will for you. And so we're going to look... This week at our first point, it's really going to be the only point that we're going to have this morning, and that is that God transforms us by giving us a new nature. In the next few weeks, we'll look at a renewed mind and a renewed walk. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 20 through 24, and I will read them as you follow along. Look at verse 20, the scripture says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Let's pray to ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we wholly trust in you to do the work of transformation in our lives. And so I pray you will use the word of God by the power of the spirit of God to do that even this morning, Lord. Make us more like Christ. That is our earnest desire in prayer. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and I heard scratching on the carpet. I heard doors opening. I heard meowing. Yes, it was my cat. And I had to go find the cat, put the cat away, lock it away, so it stopped bothering me, and so I could go back to sleep. And as I went back in my room, and I saw my dog was just laying there sleeping, and I thought... This is this past week, okay? This is not like a couple. This is this past week. I thought, why can't my cat be more like my dog? My dog likes me. Like, I come home, my dog, he runs up to me. My cat runs away from me. Throughout the day, my cat sleeps. And at night, my cat likes to walk around. My dog sleeps through the night. Now, we used this as an illustration a couple weeks ago. I used this as an illustration that your nature... Orient your mind, which produces your actions. In other words, we, we learned you, you do what you do because you think what you think because you are who you are. Why do cats do what cats do? Because cats think like cats think. And why do cats think like cats think? Because they're oriented by their nature. And why do dogs do what they do? And because the dogs think like they think. And, and the point is, if I want my cat to be like my dog, what do I have to do? I could kill my cat. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, might, I might try to train the cat to be like a dog. I might say, do this, do this, do this. Do you think my, my cat's going to turn into a dog if I do that? If I, if, if I teach my cat to like me more, do you think my cat will ever like me more? Well, maybe, I don't know, but probably not. It's not going to be like a dog unless what? Unless I were to change that cat into a dog. And you say, Pastor Ben, you're getting into some really ridiculous things here. But see, here's what we're talking about. You can't have true transformation and change unless there's change all the way down to the very nature. And so what we see here in this text is scripture is saying the people of the world sin. They reject God because they think a certain way. Their, their minds are futile. If you, you can see that in verse 17 that they walk a certain way, that's what they do, because their minds think a certain way. They're futile. They have deceived minds. They don't comprehend the truth of God, and therefore their mind is distorted to actually not see God and who he really is and how he really works, but they actually see themselves as God. They live as if they are their own gods. And therefore, verses 18 and 19 teach that comes from a corrupt, depraved nature. It's because they're spiritually dead, because they're willfully ignorant, ignorant. because they're callous to the truth, because they give themselves over to their sinful desires. That's their nature. And so what will it take to transform someone like that? Well, the answer is not do these things and you can transform yourself. The answer is this, is that God must do a supernatural work to actually transform your very nature. And that's why it's a miracle That's why the new birth is a miracle. It's not something you can do in yourself. Salvation and sanctification, which produce true change, can only take place by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, he applies that to your soul. And the power of the Spirit can truly change your life. That change takes place when a person's converted. They turn from their sin. They turn to trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it's called regeneration. He regenerates. He causes their soul to come to life. That's what happened to Nicodemus, right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, what a good person. What a religious person. And Jesus says, that's not going to do. You have to have something supernatural that happens. Nicodemus is like, well, how... How is that possible? How can you be born again? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not something you do. It's something the Holy Spirit does within you. So verses 20 to 24 is talking about supernatural transformation of your inner person. In fact, you can see that down in verse 24 when he says that God is the one who creates you. He recreates your inner person. And he changes first your nature that's at your conversion And throughout your life, he changes your thinking, which results in change of your behavior. And this is so important to get before we get into this text, because this is completely opposite of how the world views views change. See, this is the world's approach to change right here. It's do this, think like this, and you can be this. So, so you have a hard time with lying. You're a liar, right? So, what are you going to do? Well, maybe do this and maybe get accountability and do this and this. And maybe if you do these things, maybe you can not be a liar. Like, you can stop being a liar. Or or maybe you're an alcoholic, so you struggle with, with alcohol. So, it's like follow these 10 steps. And if you do that, you won't have that anymore. You do these things and you won't be that person. I saw an article on lifehack.org, and this is the article. It's called this. How do I change for the better? That's the question we're asking, right? This is the title. How do I change for the better? 17 things to start doing. 17 things? That's legalism to the extreme. I mean, what happened to the four steps or the five steps? If you want to improve your marriage, follow these five things. So the world's view to change is this, do this, think this, think this, take this pill, set up these rules, and then you can change who you are. And and let me ask this question, how's it going for them? Well, I read an article as well that talked about a government, actually, uh, institution, a government program, I should say, from the National Institute of Health. There's a program that your tax dollars are funding called the Science of Behavior Change. This is what Jennifer Sumner, PhD, wrote about this organization, you know, what they're trying to do. They're trying to be able to find out why people do what they do and how how to change behavior. And she wrote this. There's been a lot of work done to help people change their behavior, but we really don't have many successful interventions to help people maintain those changes over time. You know what she's saying? We have all these different programs and therapies and things you go through, and in the end, they really just don't work. Let's put more money into it, though, and see if we can figure it out. And the truth is, if the, tr- if the world was really able to understand Ephesians chapter 4 verses 20 through 24, we can save a lot of money in this country. Because the answer is not this. Do this, think this, so you can be this. Here's God's approach to change. You are this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he has made this to be true of you. This is who you are in Christ. So therefore, you are to think this way. And therefore, you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do this. The so verses 20 through 24 teach that God's plan for transformation is, listen to this, it's through the gospel. Your nature can be changed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. When he applies the gospel to your soul that happens when you're converted, your mind can be daily renewed by the Holy Spirit. When he applies the gospel to your soul and the word of Christ renews your mind, your actions, can be transformed as the Holy Spirit empowers you based upon the work of Jesus Christ to do what God's called you to do. And do you see the common denominator here? It's God the Father using the gospel of Jesus Christ, or I should say applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to your person by the power of the Holy Spirit. So true change From regeneration to daily sanctification to final glorification is God's work to apply the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection to you by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so what we're looking at here today is we're looking at really that first part of change, of transformation, and that is that God transforms, he must transform your inner nature so if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, then we look back and consider what happened at my conversion when that transformation took place. So if you look in verse 20 and 21, verse 20, what you see, and we saw last week, was that this is a reference to our conversion. So he says, but, so that's a transition, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So this transition, this conjunction transitions from what you were so you, you thought like this, you, you lived like this, verses 17, 18, and 19, you were controlled by your sinful desires, you were enslaved to sin, you lived for yourself, that's what you were, but you turned from that and you learned Christ, you trusted in Jesus Christ. And again, we looked last week, it's not just that you learned information and you followed a little prayer and you prayed it, it's like you trusted personally in Jesus. You had a personal encounter And that personal encounter, it drastically changed your life. So I think a question we all must answer in this room is, are you truly converted? Have you been truly converted? Have have you turned from your sin? And are you trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you have a personal, life-changing relationship with Jesus? Listen to that question. Do you have a personal, life-changing relationship with Jesus? If you're like, well, I, I come to church once in a while, and I... Is Jesus changing your life? That's Christianity. Christ is changing us. He has changed us. Yesterday, my grandpa had his funeral. He was 99 years old, passed away about a week and a half ago, and... So I watched the funeral online. Obviously, I wasn't able to be there in person. It was in Indiana. I think I've told you before, he was a good old farm boy. I actually realized how many things he did in his life. This guy had like two to three jobs throughout his whole life. So he was a hard worker, probably a product of that generation, but also a man who loved the Lord. And when he was retired, he retired, um, you know, at some point in his life there, and he started working for the Lord. I mean, he was always working for the Lord, but he went full time into it, and that he would go around to hospitals, and he would go around to people's homes and people who were needy, and he would ask them this question. He would say, do you know Christ? And if they would say, no, or they say, I don't know. He would say, well, if you don't know, then you don't know. And then he would tell them the gospel. And I think that's a question we need to ask. Like, Do you know the Lord? If you're like, well, I don't know. Well, if you don't know, then you don't know. And the reason God has given us his word is so that we can know. And not, not, not just that we can know, but you, you should know. There's certainty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise God for his testimony of that. So verses 20 through 21, we are just have a description of conversion. So verse 20 is your conversion. That's what that's pointing to. In verses 21, you see that you... You see two components of your conversion, two things that really happened at your conversion. You heard, that's past tense, you heard about him, and you were taught, that's past tense, so this is all pointing back to your conversion, you were taught in him. So the two components of your conversion is you heard who Christ is. Remember last week we said, is it, is it about Christ or is it just Christ? And I said, I don't know if it really matters. The point is, is that when you hear the gospel, when you hear the word of God, you're hearing Christ and what's he saying? <laughs> he preaches about himself. He preaches the gospel. So you're hearing who Christ is. And that word here isn't just like a, you know, you have sound coming in your ears. It's the word that was used by Christ to, to listen, receive, and to believe. Parents will ask their kids many times when they're on an iPad or watching TV or reading a book or something, are you hearing me? And they're not asking, is there sound going in your ear? Does it work? No, they're saying, are you listening and receiving what I'm saying? And that's what God's saying here. Like you listened, you knew the truth of who Jesus is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you received it unto yourself. Jesus said this in John 8:47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Hears means they listen, but they also receive it as their own. The reason why you do not hear, he was talking about the Pharisees, is that you are not of God. So they were listening to God's word, but he's saying you listen, but you don't receive it as your own. And it's because you have a sin problem, actually a sin nature problem. It's because you're not of God. And so what we see here is that you see, first, at your conversion, you you heard the gospel, you heard who Christ is, and then notice second, you were taught in Him, and so you were taught who you are in Christ. You were taught who you are as a result of the gospel. So if you look in verse twenty-one, if you have a King James or a New King James, your translation says you were taught by him. And I don't think that's the best way to translate that. If you have an NIV, ESV, NASB, or LSB, which is the majority probably in here, then you uh, have it translated like this. You were taught in him. And I think that's the accurate translation because to be taught in him is, is speaking about this connection, this relationship a believer now has to Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I read an article about Senator Dianne Feinstein, and she passed away this past week. One of the stories, one of the first stories that was out was that she left an inheritance of $70 million. And I thought, isn't that kind of sad, though, that's a reflection on society, that someone passes away and the first thing they go to is what she left behind? As As if she really cares at all about a dime of that money right now. She doesn't care about it, right? What she cares about right now is eternity. And that's what we should care about too. But it's interesting as I read that article, talked about her daughters inheriting this $70 million. And I thought, I wonder what the etymology is of the word inherit. So I looked it up. The word inherit means in -er, heir, H-E-I-R, in heredity, in the family. And so when someone inherits something, you could say that person's in him or in her or in whoever that is that that person's connected to. So when Dianne Feinstein's daughters read her will, those daughters will learn two things. Number one, what she had, right? Her mansions, she had a number of houses. She had a private jet, millions of dollars, obviously. And number two, how that will affect them. And if they're in her, if they're in the will, they will inherit that, right? That she'll, they'll get that for themselves if they're not tough for them, I guess. And when you were converted, you heard about Christ. You heard who he is. You heard what he did for you. He died. He lived a perfect life. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. Second, you heard, how does that affect you? Does that make sense? How are you in Christ? So what does it mean to be taught in him? It's taught, you're taught that Christ supernaturally changes your life through the gospel. You were taught that at your conversion, God united you to Jesus Christ. And so if you look down in verses 22, 23, and 24, what you see is here an explanation of what happened to your soul during conversion, I'm going to explain this in a little bit more detail later in the sermon, but just to have an overview so you can understand this. Verse 21, you were taught. And then it talks about in verse 22, 23, and 24, what you were taught. You were taught, this is at your conversion, that you have put off your old self. Now, old self is that former life. It's the life of Paul before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. It's, it's Paul when he was persecuting Christians and, and putting people in prison. It's Nicodemus, or I should say it's Zacchaeus when he was in that sycamore tree before that, when he was robbing people and and taking their money and and ripping people off, right? It's that former life. You can see that in verse 22. He says, your former way, your former manner of life. So it's that old self. So before, it's the person you were before you came to Christ. And so this is teaching is at your conversion, God the Father applied Christ's death to your soul and he executed that old self. And so you left that old self behind. Verse 23, at your conversion, God started the process of renewing your mind. In other words, God started to work within you to make you like Christ practically in your life. And verse 24, at your conversion, God applied the resurrection of Christ to your soul. You can see that in there, that word he says, he created you in Christ Jesus in the image of God. So he gave you a new nature. And again, we'll explain that in more detail in just a moment. But what happened to you when you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, God supernaturally united you with Christ? And this is called the doctrine of union with Christ. This doctrine goes like this. If you want to write this down, this might be a treasure for you to keep with you somewhere in your Bible. Union with Christ is this that God the Father applied the work of Christ to your soul and so united you to Christ that all of his grace and his blessings are yours. So this is the truth, that God the Father applied the work of Christ. thats his death, burial, and resurrection. He applied that to your soul and so united you to Christ that all of his grace and blessings are yours are yours. And at this point, you're saying, oh, Pastor Ben, theology, doctrine, I'm about to go to sleep, or maybe I already am. But please don't, because I actually think that if you understand this doctrine right here, it will change your life. This doctrine is like a lost treasure, and Christians need to go open it up and figure out what's inside. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I was thinking, the importance of this, and I was thinking, if you got a letter in this week from Bernard Arno, and it said, I got something for you, what would you do with that letter? Now, how many know who Bernard Arno is? Raise your hand. Oh, okay. Well, nobody. nobody. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Except if you read Forbes magazine, because he is the richest person on earth, $210 billion. Now, if you got a letter from that guy this week, and he says, I got something for you, would you research him? Would you try to find out as much as you could about him? Especially if he said, go to this place, and you'll find this there. You're going to try to find out. And the point is, what we have here is, is far beyond that, that man, anything that man could ever give you. This is a treasure that lasts for eternity, that, is, that its worth is eternal. And so union with Christ is so important. So I hope you will tune your minds into this this morning as we think about this. When we study union with Christ, what we look for are a couple of key phrases. One is in him. Another one is in Christ. That's why I gave you an assignment this past week to read through Ephesians and study how many times you saw the word, the phrase, in him, or in Christ, or in the beloved. So, did you guys do the assignment? Okay, I won't, I won't give, a, have you turn it in, I guess, but I did it out of the ESV. So, does anyone have, how many times do you find the phrase, in him, in Ephesians? Anyone have a guess? Eight, you got eight? Nine. Okay, I found nine, too. I didn't cheat, I just went through and, and searched for it, okay? And, okay, and how about in Christ? Thirteen. Thirteen. Fifteen. Oh, you might be using a different translation, <laughs> but, but I believe you. Okay. Well, I got thirteen as well. So, and I use the ESV. So we'll see. Maybe, I, maybe I didn't uh, count it right. That could be possible. But what's interesting, if you look at it, if you look for those phrases in verses or in chapters one through three, the phrase in Christ. Let's see. Let me find this here. Make sure this, I'm correct about this because I don't want to be wrong about this part. The phrase, oh yeah, the, the phrase in him is found only in chapters one through three, except in our passage right here, verse, chapter four, verse 21. The phrase in Christ is only found in chapters one through three, except in our text right here, down in chapter four, verse 32. So my point is this, when you're seeing the in hims and in Christ, you find them pretty much only, except for those two examples, in the first three chapters. Why is that? Well, if you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, what you'll find is those chapters are heavy with doctrine. And the doctrine really can be summed up like this, that God in Christ has made you a new person. I mean, when you read those three chapters, you see all that God has done to make you a new person in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 teach the commands. How in Christ God expects you to walk, to live. And so the point of this is that when we are considering what it means to be in union with Christ, we're going to look at those first three chapters and really study that. Now, we're not going to do that in depth here this morning, but I would encourage you to find those treasures of what it means that you are connected to Jesus Christ. Here's one verse that's a very, probably one you've memorized at some point, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So at your conversion, you were placed in Christ. You were united with Christ. This is an eternal connection that gives all the blessings and grace of Christ to you. The Bible uses the illustration of the union of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. The union of marriage to illustrate this union with Christ. Jesus used the illustration in John 15 of a a branch on a vine connected, united to a vine that needs the nutrients of that vine. So to be in Christ, to be in him means that you are eternally connected to God. Maybe give it as a little story to help us understand this. I want you to imagine a man who is on the side of the street and he is a wandering scoundrel. He is wanted by the FBI. He has millions of dollars in debt. He's laying there in his dirty, filthy, stinky clothes. He's he's depressed. He's afraid. Okay, so he's the worst situation you could possibly imagine. Then a man in a limousine pulls up, and this man gets out of the limousine. He's well-dressed. He has some papers in his hand. And he walks over, and he says, are you so-and-so? And the man says, yes, I am. And he says, I am a benefactor, and I have heard about your situation, and I have something for you here. In this hand right here, I have a pardon for all your crimes. In this hand right here, I have a note that says all of your debts have been paid for. In this hand right here, I have a a piece of paper that has my bank account, and your name is next to my name in the bank account. In this paper right here, I have the deed to my mansion, and my mansion is now your mansion as well. If you get in this limousine, all of this will be yours. So the man agrees. He gets in the limousine. He drives to the mansion. He finds out in his bank account that there's millions, maybe billions of dollars in there, and all of that is now his. In other words, this man was connected, is connected, is in the benefactor. You could say everything of that benefactor's is now that man's. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Everything that is Christ's is now ours. And so that should cause us to say, well, what does Christ have? (laughs) What does he offer that I could have for myself? Well, Christ offers a new identity. He gives a new identity. He changes our position and he changes our condition. So just think about what it means that we are in Christ. It means that when you walk into the treasure room of God's grace, every treasure of heaven is yours. The phrase in Christ means that when you look up in the log books of heaven, you are described as one who is redeemed, one who is regenerated, justified, sanctified, forgiven, adopted, You have the inheritance. You're even described in Romans chapter 8 as glorified. Like, that's the guarantee that you have. The phrase in Christ means that when Satan accuses you before God and says, you deserve to go to hell for your sins. You deserve to die eternally for it. Jesus speaks and goes, no, actually, he's already dead. She's already dead. Satan goes, no, they're not. They're alive. They deserve to go to hell. And Jesus says, no, that person's united to me. I died, so he's dead. Dead to that sin, no longer under condemnation. The phrase in Christ means that when Satan says, well, you have no right to be in heaven, Jesus says, actually, right here is the deed to heaven, and that person's name is right here. I wrote it with my own blood. So it means that everything of Christ is ours. In fact, notice this. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Because really, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we really should read that and be overwhelmed that what we're reading is what God has done Through Christ for us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Right off the bat, he addresses the church. The saints who are in Ephesus. Saints, holy ones. Now think about that. Because these people, some of these people in the church, they had been demon worshipers. That's what Acts chapter 19 says. I mean, they, they burnt all those books of witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. Would you consider those people holy ones? What made these people holy ones? They're in Christ. In fact, look at verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3. God is the one who declared them to be holy ones because they're in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, notice those next two words, in Christ, with every, most, some, no, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, in Christ is like the bank account number for the eternal riches of Christ. It's like, it's like you're coming down for Christmas and you want to go get the presents. And all the presents under the tree have your name on it, even though they're not yours. Someone's given them to you. It's Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Notice Ephesians 1 7. We're just going to touch a couple of these. In him, you could say, in Christ, we have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see, when you walk into the first bank of God's eternal grace, the name on the account is Jesus, and your name is right next to it. And when you open up the vault of what Jesus has done in redemption, you are looking into an immeasurable uh, a measurable, on the measurable riches of Christ's grace. When you go into the vault of what Christ owns, what you find there, the riches of grace are eternal. But look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. You can see that what Christ owns is yours. Ephesians 1, 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. So in Christ, you have what is Christ. What, what is Christ? What does he own? Well, he's the Son of God, and therefore, since you're in him, you are now sons adopted by the Father. Jesus, he has the love of the Father eternally. Nothing can separate that love. And you're in Christ, you are eternally loved by the Father. You have the peace and the joy and the fellowship of the Father. You have the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. What Christ has is yours. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Because this wasn't always the case. You didn't. You didn't you weren't born like this. In Ephesians 2, 1, actually you were born dead. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were in sin, in Adam. Your very nature was depraved. But look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. But now you are his workmanship created. That's past tense, point in time in the past. That's something that's passive. In other words, God, at your conversion, he recreated your inner person. He gave you a new nature. We could keep going through Ephesians and look at all these in hymns and in Christ, and we could dig up all these riches. But let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look at the riches of God's grace to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And notice in verse 21, That we were taught in him. We're taught that we are a new person because of the grace of God. If you look at verse 22, 23, and 24, your English translation probably indicates, seems to indicate, that these are commands. So if you read these like commands, it would read like this. Verse 21, you were taught in him. Verse 22, you must put off your old self. Verse 23, you must be renewed. Verse 24, you must put on the new self. But here's the interesting thing. I'm getting a little technical, but it's important because it helps us understand truth. And that is these are not commands. So if you look in the original language, these are actually infinitives. So there's no imperatives in these verses, just infinitives. In other words, a statement of fact based upon what you were taught. Here's what you were taught happened at your conversion. And so I think it's better. I put it on the screen up here so you can read it as well up here. I think it's better to read it like this. It's a more accurate translation of it. You have put on, put off your old self. So you've put off your old self. Verse 24, you have put on the new self. And again, these are past tense. These are point in time. So what happened at at your conversion? So what does it mean to put off your old self? What happened at that point? Well, that's really speaking of repentance. Like you, 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 you. You said, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to follow my sin anymore. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm not going to follow those, that former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful lust. But it's not just your own repentance. Actually, what happened was God, the Father, he caused your old self to be crucified with Christ. You were united with Christ so that, so that it was like you died at that moment when you were converted. It's like you died with Christ at that moment. Of course, Christ died at a point in time, but the Holy Spirit applied that to your life. That's what it's saying. You've put off the old self. God did that to you, and you did it when you also, and you were a part of that when you turned from that way of living. Look at verse 24. You have put on the new self. So notice this is, this is again, you've you put on the new self, and what is the new self? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and Holiness. So at your conversion, God so united you with Christ that you were resurrected. You believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You were resurrected to that faith and to that new life. And again, look at that word created. It's, it's past tense. It's something that's passive. It's something God did to you. So at your conversion, God recreated your inner person, your inner nature. And notice how he created you in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Well, who is the image of God? Well, Jesus is the image of God. So he, he created you holy like God. Notice that, notice like, I said, holy like Christ. Notice that in verse 24. After the likeness of God in true righteousness, he created you righteous. He created you holy. And look at verse 23, sandwiched in between there. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. That is at conversion, God united you with Christ. And he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you have for the rest of your life. And that gift is to renew your thinking so he can transform your behavior. So verse twenty-three or 22, 23, and 24 are speaking of your union with Christ at your conversion. You are not the old person in Adam anymore. You are now the new person in Christ. So God's plan for transformation starts at your conversion. So let's, let's come, come back to the practical. You want to change your life? You want God to change your life? Well, here's the question. Have you truly been converted? Has God so united you, your soul, to Jesus Christ that you have had a change of your inner being? God has given you a new nature. See, the, the answer is not do this, do this, do this, and then God will do this. The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you. God is not in the business of just modifying your behavior. God is in the business of supernaturally transforming your nature. So, if you're in Christ, what is the call of God to you? Remember what God did to you. Remember who you are truly in Christ. And because you are a new person in Christ, because you are a saint. Because you are forgiven, because you are holy, live as the one God made you to be. I mean, think about that illustration of that man who was picked up in that limousine. His life was changed. Can you imagine if that man decided to go back out in the street, put those old clothes on, and live out there? You would walk up to that man, and you'd say, what are you doing? Like, you have all this. This is who you are. Why are you on the street doing this right here? And you would say, Don't live like that. Live like how that man made you to be. That's what the call is in the gospel. That is the call in the scripture to us. Martin Lloyd Jones said it like this In Christ, I am a saint, and I become more saintly as I proceed. In other words, God made me a saint, but I should be becoming more and more saintly. I do not end by being a saint. I start as a saint. You understand the difference there? He's saying, I'm not living my life hoping that someday I can be a saint, so therefore I can go be with God. He's saying, God says, you're a saint, live like a saint. But it should be increasingly evident that I am a saint as I go on in my sanctification. Let me just share two passages to help you with this. Put them on the screen up here, Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another. So God's saying, don't live like the world. Don't lie like the world, like you did before you were a believer. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self, that old life and its practices. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you are a different person. God has made you a different person. So act like the person God's made you to be. Or how about in Romans chapter 6? Verse 4 and then verse 6 as well. These are two really good passages to study this week if you want to learn more about this. Verse 6 of Romans 6, or verse 4 of Romans 6 says, We were buried together with him by baptism in a death. So he's talking about that time when you were converted, he united you with Jesus in baptism. It's not talking about water baptism, but spiritual baptism. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that union with Christ enables you to walk with the Lord. We know that our old self, that the old me was crucified with him. When did that happen? Well, when we were converted. We were united with him, with him in order that the body of sin, that is, that the body we have right now might not, uh, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you don't have to be a slave to sin because Jesus has applied, or I should say God the Father has applied the work of Jesus to your life. The gospel has been applied to your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God has given you a new position. He's made you a saint. He's made you holy. He's made you righteous Giving you the righteousness of Christ, and He's given you a new condition. Verse twenty-three: He is giving you the Holy Spirit. You're renewed. That's pa- passive; it's something God is doing by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question: Does that mean you're never going to sin? Does, does that mean that you're not going to be tempted to sin? That's not what that means. Having a new nature does not mean you are no longer tempted, or that you're always going to do what's right. Having a new nature means this. God has so equipped your inner person that he's given you everything you need to live a holy life. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the grace of Christ. You have been given new desires, a softened conscience, a strengthened will. You have the word of God. And so it's not that you're not going to struggle. It's this, that God has started the work in you and God will continue to work in you. And before the Father, when he looks at you and considers who you are, what he sees, he sees Jesus. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is within you. And he will help you to be more and more like Christ. And so what do we need to do if we really want to be transformed on a daily basis? We need to look back and think about what did God do in my soul through the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, he applied the gospel to my life. What do I need today I need to apply the gospel to my life. I need to consider who God has made me to be. Who am I in Christ? Let me just end by giving you a real-life illustration. I think that sometimes you can get lost in the clouds of theology. So let's come down to the earth and see this. Some of you in here have had people in your life that have hurt you. You've had people who have maybe betrayed you. Maybe they've gossiped about you behind your back. Or maybe there's a friend who, who has um, had a misunderstanding and now they've cut off their relationship. Or, or maybe there's um, a, someone that, you know, worked for you or whatever, a contractor, and they ripped you off some money. But they, they get the point. Like, you have, you have people that have hurt you, right? And so what is the response that the world gives to that? Well, they do you wrong. Better get them back. Right? Revenge. It's, it's, you know, lay at night, bed at night and think about all the bad things that they've done. It's go on their social media and just hope that maybe they did something that's going to ruin their life, right? <laughs> it's like, so you think about that person and there's this bitterness and there's this wrath and there's this clamor and there's this evil speaking you can even do, slander you might do to someone else about, or do, does anyone know where we find that in the Bible? Where's, where, where, I'm just quoted like a verse right now. Do you know where that's found? I look at the very end of chapter four, because that's in verse 31. Because actually, verse 31 says, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice." Oh, okay. Well, that's the world, right? We're not supposed to live that way, but we kind of are tempted to, aren't we? So, so what's the response? I guess my point is, is what, what? How should we respond? Well, I think it's this. Look at this. First thing you do is you say, "Okay, wait. Who am I in Christ?" Right? Who was I? I was a person that deserved condemnation, right? I was under the wrath of God. I sinned against God. I was a rebel against God. I deserve to be punished by God. But what did Christ do for me? He lived. He died. He rose again. And what did God the Father do? He applied that to my soul. So who am I now? Who am I now? I'm forgiven by God. I'm loved by God. God gives me kindness. Why? Because I'm a good person? Is that why he does it? No. (laughs) Because he applied the work of Christ to my life so how should I treat other people? You see what it is? It's it's realizing that this is who I am in Christ. God has made me one who is holy, one who is forgiven, one who is righteous, one who has God's love. So I need to live like that. I need to live like the one who God has made me. I need to forgive like God forgave. I need to love like God loves. I need, does that make sense? And it's going back to who you are in Christ. And and think about it. You think, well, that person really wronged me. Listen, forgiveness does not mean that you pretend like sin doesn't matter. Did sin matter to God? So much so that Jesus was tortured on the cross for us. Like, sin mattered to God. It's not like you don't deal with sin. Forgiveness is not pretending like it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is not asking a sinner or calling a sinner to repentance. It's Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt that person. That's what forgiveness is. It's surrendering my right to hurt that person. Well, they deserve it. Oh, let's go back to who we are in Christ. We deserve it. (laughs) But Jesus, all right, God the Father didn't give it to us, He reserved the right He has to punish us by punishing Jesus. And so, did God punish our sin? Absolutely but he did it by punishing his son. Did God the Father punish our sin? He punished the son instead of us. And so then as we consider that, we can look at verse 32, and what does he say? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God, and what's the next two words in verse 32? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, look, God united me to Jesus, and he forgave me. And if that's who I am in Christ, that's how I should live. Let's pray.